Welcome to Scandal.K12.us. Our Scandal K12 curriculum is a true crime comedy podcast about bamboozling boards, sneaky superintendents, lame learning products, and teachers who are way too cool for school. This curriculum may contain references and potential descriptions of crimes against minors in the field of education. Listener discretion is advised. And now, time for morning announcements. Good morning, Scandal K-12 students. Home of the Fighting Rats. Go Rats! So let's all stand for the state anthem of North Carolina. Carolina, Carolina, Very spirited indeed. Students, if you're interested in joining our Glee Club, you can contribute a school or state song. For more information, go to scandalk12us.com forward slash glee. Today's Power Breakfast is sponsored by North Carolina. In the words of an old-timey advertisement, have you had your crazy today? Well, that wasn't theoretical. Have you had your crazy today? Because hold on, it's cray-cray time. Today, students, we're going to look into the crazy story of phonetic awareness, assessments, and reading interventions in North Carolina. Phonetic. Phonemic. Phonemic awareness. We're going to go with phonemic awareness. Anyway, this will be a battle for the hearts and minds, pitting the minimal pair of EdTech Titans, Amplify, representing the Hatfields, and iStation, serving as the McCoys. This battle has been ongoing and may turn out to be a final showdown over the hearts and minds of students in a mid-Atlantic state of North Carolina, and their story is an object lesson on why you never get into a wrestling match with a pig, you're both going to get muddy, and chances are the pig likes it. This is an episode we're calling scandal.k12.us forward slash crazy waters. Now, before we get into our main announcement, we have a few stories from the Tar Heel State about school officials and educators. Let's pour one out for former teacher Chastity Robinson, who had worked as a teacher in Cumberland County Elementary School in North Carolina for over 10 years. Recently, however, she has had a change of heart. According to the Carolina Public Press, an award-winning breakthrough journalist site, according to the Carolina Public Press, Robinson claimed she, quote, was being asked to do 10 times more than I normally do in the classroom while still trying to be a parent and keep my kid alive. She went on to say, I would have meetings at the same time that my child was supposed to be in class. I felt that I wasn't doing anything well and I surely wasn't teaching effectively. It seems that along with education jobs being lost due to budget cutbacks, many educators are now leaving the field, reversing North Carolina's relatively low teacher attrition rate for the past decade. According to those tracking the trend, with educators choosing to exit an already understaffed education system, the problem of teacher shortages could increase dramatically over the next couple of years. There's a speculation that some of the teachers who are leaving due to job stress imposed by COVID may return to the classroom However, many experienced educators who are experiencing burnout are taking early retirement and are unlikely to return, or they are changing careers entirely. A report cited in WCNC Charlotte in 2020 said that all of the schools, elementary schools are the hardest hit with more than half of the 5,749 teachers that left saying that they're leaving the profession for personal reasons, including teaching in another state, family relocation, and some are giving up teaching altogether. According to Kristen Papoy, program manager of the Masters of Art teaching program at UNC Chapel Hill, the state already has a teacher shortage and, quote, more retirements and people leaving the profession will exacerbate this situation. 
She goes on to say, it'll be important for us to focus on recruitment and teacher retention, putting a lot of focus on early career teachers being engaged and happy, feeling effective and energized in the profession. With North Carolina at the 30th place for pay, the state was put on notice long before COVID crisis. One teacher in 2018 actually posted a copy of their paycheck claiming that they were paid about $54 a day to educate all the children in their classroom after all deductions were taken out. None of those deductions were a 401k and there are no union dues in North Carolina since collective bargaining is illegal. After some wrangling, the state raised the rate of pay. In 2020, with 10 years teaching and a master's degree and certification, teachers make about $50,000 a year or $272 a day before taxes and other deductions. Well, this may sound like a lot of money to live on since, well, it's North Carolina. We have to update our bias and check our privilege since North Carolina is no longer the rural state of podunk living clodhoppers. In recent decades, many large tech firms have flocked to the state and there are now a crop of new jobs available to compete with the traditionally stable income teaching is supposed to provide. Some examples of new tech jobs that we were able to find on the recruiting website Indeed were data collector, billing processor, and customer service technician, all of which start between sixty-eight dollars and $75,000 a year, and all of which require only a high school education rather than a master's and certification in addition to ongoing education required to maintain said certification. So before we jump in, let's get a little background on the, where our story takes place. North Carolina is also known as the Tar Heel State. It's home to Asheville, the Portland of the Mid-Atlantic, as well as Wilmington, not Delaware, Washington, not D.C., Plymouth, not Massachusetts, and Jacksonville, not Florida. It might sound a little confusing, but if you get lost in the state, there's simple orientation. If you smell patchouli and hear bluegrass or jug band music, you're in Asheville. If you smell the waft of Annie's pretzels, you're in the Charlotte Airport Level 2 atrium next to Jersey Mike's. If you're being evacuated a few times a year, you're on one of the barrier islands on the verdant coast of North Carolina. North Carolina is known for its nature, culture, and music, as well as food. It's also known for having a higher-than-average poverty rate, with 13.6% of the state's population surviving on, quote, income of just $25,750 for a family of four, according to the North Carolina Justice Center. That works out to about $70 a day, or $2,100 a month. Now, you might be thinking, $2,100 a month sounds like a lot of money, but that's because you're living in your parents' basement. But if you're living out on your own, you get to subtract rent, which averages about $1,000 a month as a state average. Rent, of course, differs as a state. Rent, of course, differs in the state as anywhere, with the apartment in Charlotte averaging about $1,200 a month, and in Asheboro, North Carolina, around $750 a month. Anyway, Along with rent, you can subtract utilities, and perhaps one person drives a car to work, which leaves only about $300 for food per month, which works out to about $10 a day. Again, this rate is for a family of four. However, we found that $300 is enough to buy 60 party-sized bags of Doritos Cool Ranch flavored chips, which, if you eat the entire bag, is about 2,100 calories, and since the average adult only needs about 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day, this leaves a food supply of about 15 to 25 days if the family are all average adults that subsist only on party-sized Doritos Cool Ranch flavored chips. Now, with a higher-than-average poverty rate, it is expected, of course, that there is also grim data from the world of education. 
Apparently a belly full of only cool Dorito Ranch flavor doesn't help learning. The Tar Heel State rests at 15th place in the nation as of 2018 with a literacy rate that is lower than many other states. Only 36% of 4th graders are proficient on state exams and 8th graders are just scraping by with 33% proficiency in 2019 despite investments by the state such as the Read to Achieve law which was signed into legislation back in 2012. To date, Reach to Achieve has spent about $150 million to improve outcomes, but has largely failed to make much impact, according to WRAL.com, the online version of WRAL-TV, a Durham-based TV station that once employed Jesse Helms as its more racist and less likable Andy Rooney. Helms back then was a local celebrity until his breakout role in 1973 as United States Senator and chief opponent to AIDS research treatment and funding, claiming in 1987 that AIDS was, quote, God's punishment for homosexuals. Jesse Helms aside, North Carolina has been pushing school districts to improve literacy. Along with Reach to Achieve, North Carolina has been working since 2003 to increase access to technology for students in the state. While money has been spent to bring technology into schools, as we know, a computer is not like a hammer or a shovel, those industrial tools that last a lifetime. Technology needs to be fed money every year at best and every five or so years at worst. While the state did push to get students quote-unquote wired as of 2020, only 38% of North Carolina school districts had achieved the state's replacement goal to upgrade technology, and about 30% of districts in the state didn't have a budget for replacement devices. As we know from previous episodes, technology is purchased using contracts, and this often makes the state lag behind the process, and it can take time, leading to things being obsolete by the time it's adopted. This time is supposed to ensure a level playing field for all the folks bidding on it, but as we know, every project plan can go downhill and strings can be pulled. Now we're going to need to press pause on North Carolina in the current day and travel back in time to the great state of Texas. So buckle up, buggeroos. We're going to do a little rustling around the family of a certain Richard Collins. CEO of iStation. Normally, we don't go all the way back and sniff about ancestors of our current CEO class in education, but, you know, dang it, this here story, it's a tall tale that makes Pecos Bell seem daggone cartoonish. Our starting point, primary source, will be richardcollins.com. This here website is dang for all things Collins, both them's above snakes and them's deader than a doornail. On richardcollins.com, there's so many aspects of CEO Richard Collins. Richard can be seen wearing a cape, famed logo of his company, iStation, as well as see him depicted as Captain America, as well as humble brag about his many accomplishments of his family history since that fellow comes from a long line of flannel mouse ten-cent men. If you have time, do check it out. RichardCollins.com. It's worth it. Now here, partner, before we go to our current Captain America, let's look at old grandpappy who built the family fortune, one that is not so tangentially related to, of all things, a wobbling-jawed, musically-inclined doctor who claimed he could implant goat testicles to cure impotency. Oh, yes, fellas and gals, you you heard me right. This story drives right past the old Goatland doctor. 
Bye, you say. Thunderation, you varmints are in for a story. You see, back in that old Lone Star State, Richard's grandfather, Carpy Collins, was in the insurance business. You know, back in them days, the insurance industry was seen as a legitimate industry, unlike today where it seems like some confidence game you pay into that never doesn't pay out. Well, except for old Flo, and maybe that there lizard fella, and maybe that there duck. But you see, another legitimate industry was uh, was big back then, was the miracle cure-all industry. In show, Carl P. Collins understood that in the Wild West there was capitalism. Out there in that Wild West, he could sell both and cure what ailed you and give your old lady a double indemnity policy in case that cure wasn't Simon Pure. Now, like any good snake oil salesman, or what we now may be called essential oil account executive on LinkedIn, Carr P. Collins bought a spring that happened to have waters of salvation to salve the soul, and which had a hotel right there next to it. It was there at the hotel, Crazy Waters, that the guests took advantage of the spring to soak, expectorate, and otherwise regain vim and vigor, as well as solve all manner of maladies from typhoid and Bright's disease to lumbago and arthritis. Unfortunately, when the Great Depression hit, the hotel bookings plummeted. That's the Great Depression of 1929, not the lesser economic clusters we call recessions, such as the American Mini Depressions of 1949 or 1958, 1973, 75, 1980, 82, 2007, 2009, or 2020 to a yet unknown date. Now, as you can imagine, a hotel with no guests or frolic in the crazy waters of Regenerative minerals was a disaster, but if you can't get the people to the water, you bring the water to the people. Carr and his investors created a factory in order to distill and then evaporate the waters to their components, which were healing salts. This salt, not to be confused with Epsom salts, bliss, blue silk, lunar wave, meow meow, meph, ocean burst, pure ivory, snow leopard, stardust, vanilla sky, white knight, or Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop brand bath salt, quote, the Martini Emotional Detox Bath Soak. This was a healing salt. Now, with a factory and a pile of salt, Carr needed to get the word out and find some tenderfoots who wanted to cure all with magic pills. He had a few problems from the get-go. You see, it wasn't 1875, but there were very few laws out there saying that you can't sell dried bat meat to cure cancer and such laws generally were always never enforced. So Carr's claims were bold, but he still had to avoid the few laws that were out there, and in order to do that and adhere to those uh, very scant laws, he uh, looked away from America. You see, Carr P. Collins decided to purchase a radio station just on the other side of the Texas border in sunny Mexico from one Dr. John Romulus Brinkley. Now, you may already know the story of Dr. John Romulus Brinkley, as he was known for his xenotransplantation of goat testicles into humans, and since xenotransplantation is a hard word, even for them with master's degrees from fancy city slicker universities, old Dr. Brinkley was popularly known as the goat gland doctor. With the radio station switching from discussing goat nads to broadcasting claims of regenerative health via the Crazy Water Crystals, Collins expanded into many other states. His target 
was poor, illiterate, unhealthy people looking for a simple solution and wonders to improve their lot, and for many, Crazy Water Crystals did the trick. By 1930, Crazy Water Crystals grew from one station to a company that sponsored music programs, one of which was WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yes, the North Carolina featured in our story of phonemic, phonemic, phonemic awareness assessments and reading interventions. As you see, it all comes together, or perhaps we at Scandal.k12.us suffer from apophenia. During the Great Depression, through the company's sponsorship of hillbilly music programs and other radio stations, the show quickly became known to many rural and working-class North Carolinians, and sales of crazy water crystals took off. On the radio, the primary old-timey essential oils account executive for this particular sales channel was none other than Grady Cole, a beloved radio personality who spent decades on the old North Carolina airwaves and was a known name to older generations the way our generation knows the name George Norrie. With Grady Cole pitching, the hailbillies playing, and sales zooming, these short years amounted to a vast fortune for Carr P. Collins. However, the days of wine and roses, or crazy water, came to an halt when, quote, investigations by the Food and Drug Administration and the Federal Trade Commission both concluded that the outlandish claims of crazy water's effectiveness were clearly exaggerated. According to the blog NCpedia, as a source for all things N.C., in 1940, Collins got a, quote, cease and desist order from the Federal Trade Commission and had to, we'll say, pivot from that and into another form of quackery, home, life, and car insurance. Over the years, the Collins family gathered more and more wealth and accolades from one industry or another. Every member of the family was a Midas with a touch. At least according to RichardCollins.com, that website created to honor the life of one, Richard Collins. So now we're going to jump back from the old days to our current day and jump from talking about snake oil business to phonemic awareness assessments and reading interventions. iStation was founded in 1998 by the soi disant visionary entrepreneur George Grayson. He served as CEO until 2007 when he was displaced by the soi disant co-founder of iStation Richard Collins. We'll get into the tumultuous relationship between Collins and Grayson, but for now, let's go into telling at least one company cultural creation story. George Grayson was, as he called himself, a visionary entrepreneur. Most days he was busier than a borrowed mule, and in addition to other activities, he founded iStation and was a sole shareholder until December 2006, at least according to 2010 court documents, where he begrudgingly gives Richard Collins some credit in co-conceiving this business entity. So perhaps he is a co-founder? Anyway, according to George Grayson's LinkedIn profile, a Facebook for those aged 46 to 55 who can't prove age discrimination but suspect it exists or claim to be consultants or podcasters just to cover what is now a troubling gap in their own work history, but we digress. Grayson has had a long career in technology, but not necessarily education technology. Education, you see, is one of the few industries where the higher you are, the less you need experience in the industry. You teach in the classroom, you need experience and training. Not just one, but every summer and every day off you need training. You may never have time for anything else but training for the duration of your classroom tenure. You want to be a principal of a school? You need special licenses, prior leadership experience, and in some places, and in some places, years of classroom experience teaching. But in education, CEO? 
Well, you could come from, well, just about anywhere. Prior to founding iStation in 1998, Grayson founded or worked on a number of companies that produced media products. One of these products was called Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time CD-ROM, a collection of mini-games, screensavers, desktop wallpapers, and icons for Mac OS System 7, DOS, and Windows. The CD-ROM video game Ace Ventura, a classic point-and-click adventure game that's said to resemble, quote, the tone of Sierra Games' Leisure Suit Larry series and Return to Crondor, the long-awaited sequel to 1993's Betrayal at Crondor, released for Windows 95. You can find a review of the CD-ROM game Ace Ventura by retro game reviewer that rat guy on YouTube, who said of the game that there was a crap ton of humor, but he also said that there were more cutscenes and dialogue than there is actual gameplay. According to Mr. Grayson's LinkedIn, he hasn't been active being a visionary entrepreneur since 2007, and perhaps the CD-ROM world has changed and passed him by. But remember, anyone under 30 listening to this announcement, one day everything you use will be obsolete, and people will make fun of those obsolete things, and by extension will be making fun of you. So beyond Ace Ventura, Grayson didn't stay in the world of CD-ROMs forever, but moved into education technology just as that industry really started to take off in the late 90s and the entrance of, of course, No Child Left Behind legislation. By the early 2000s, iStation, then known as Imagination Station, matured from a Dallas startup to an EdTech dynasty and had taken on Richard H. Collins as co-founder. Today, iStation is the, quote, nation's leading providers of richly animated game-like education technology, according to iStation's website, offering a number of assessments, curriculum, math, Spanish, and reading programs. While they have many products for this episode, we're just going to focus on some of their reading products and related assessments in a contest that will eventually pit Southern Methodist University and iStation against the University of Oregon and Amplify. Well, we're going to get into details. Basically, Amplify is an education technology company that got its start in assessments and even more specifically screening children for early reading capability, something iStation was moving to compete in. We'll get more into that battle just a little later in this episode, but for now, let's look at assessing children's ability to understand complex text. As with just about everything EdTech, we start with the 2001 Space Odyssey that is the No Child Left Behind federal legislation, which increased the need for testing across the board and the whole, quote, hold schools accountable thing. iStation developed a number of products to meet the needs of schools who were required to meet outcome expectations and teachers who needed to monitor progress, identifying learning, or what they called iStation's Indicators of Progress, or ISIP. No need to take notes on this just yet, students. We're going to get into it a little bit deeper. But according to Business Wire, the most Berkshire Hathaway of Berkshire Hathaway companies, in 2003, Texas expanded the use of iStation's Indicators of Progress, or ISIP, or ISILP, in Houston, Dallas, and Fort Worth to deliver a, quote, revolutionary research-based reading instruction and intervention program that interactively teaches alphabetic principle Phonemic awareness, graphophonemic. Graphophonemic, is, is that even a real word? Knowledge, vocabulary, and comprehension as part of a strategic approach which results in children learning to read. 
Now, as they say out west, hold on to your horses. There's a lot of bold statements in that are nuttier than a squirrel turn, so let's unpack them as much as we can without giving a graduate-level course on any of this since, well, believe us, there are many graduate-level courses, and each one of those graduate-level courses costs thousands of dollars in student loans you'll never be able to pay back as long as you work in the classroom, and here we are just giving this knowledge away for free. So what is ISIP? In layman's turn, iStation distills children's knowledge into the basic crystalline structure, evaporates this knowledge, and then allows end users to make a crystal leftover into a delicious tonic drink or fluid that can be used as an enema in order to guarantee colonic health. Oh, wait, that's Crazy Waters Crystals. Sorry, we got our notes mixed together when we did a mail merge. What iStation's reading product was to deliver is a research-based reading instruction and intervention program that can be turnkeyed in schools, allowing non-specialist teachers to ensure that all children can achieve proficiency. Now, as you can hear, this needs to be broken down into components since research-based reading instruction and reading intervention are two different activities and it can be confusing. Research-based reading instruction is also known as evidence-based reading instruction and it basically means that there's some study by a group of professionals, academics and the like, who back up whatever claims a reading program makes. With any luck, this research is independent, that is, the evidence isn't paid for by the proponents of the program or is done by the employee of a company. Pay particular attention to that statement. As they say, the gun used in the first act will come into play in the third. The scandal students, uh, do make a note of that last point, since the professor on the company payroll introduced in the first act is sure to come up in the third, and any time someone reads an educational research study but you hear hillbilly music in the background, be very, very suspicious. Some of you who have gone to school or may even be in the classroom have heard about reading intervention, and for those of you in education, you're going to hear nothing but reading intervention, and you're telling your smart speaker to skip this program, but hold on a moment. For those who are English teachers especially, you can either skip this section, or you can listen closely, pen in hand, waiting to hear factual errors. You can yell at your smart speaker, and then eventually write an angry email. Really, educators, if we're wrong on any of this, let us know at scandalk12us at gmail.com. For those non-English teachers or non-classroom teachers, we could say reading intervention is when you get out of reading something by looking at the spark notes 10 minutes before the exam, but since we're here to educate as well as to entertain, we'll let you know what you need to know. Reading intervention has been around for a 100 years or so as a pedagogical, that is, instructional concept, and it was discovered by pedagogues, that is, teachers, educators, that many children with, quote, average or above-average IQs and normal vision and hearing were unable to learn to read. While the activities to address this deficit in ability has changed in the many decades since the concept was first introduced, and most have given up on the eugenics-adjacent IQ test, reading intervention is core to many educational initiatives. In many classrooms over the last few decades, this has meant, rather than waiting for little Johnny to not read, educators continuously screen children in the early grades and then provide different supports depending on identified deficiencies. Maybe more work on alphabet awareness, maybe more work on phonemes. Now the second reading recovery differs in that it's broken out when a student is not just reading below grade level, but far below grade level. Say a third grader who's reading at a kindergarten level. These students are given reading recovery, which is a different animal altogether. 
Those 30 to 35 percent of students in 2019 who are not proficient may be around grade level, but they're not far enough below to warrant reading recovery. They may just require more frequent assessments to monitor progress and recommended additional supports. Now let's get into exactly what we're measuring. There's the alphabetic principle, phonemic awareness, not to be confused with phonics, which we'll cover in a later episode, graphophonemic knowledge, vocabulary, and comprehension. There are components in early reading, and of course, there's a lot of different camps when it comes to which element is important and so forth, so let's just keep it simple and focus on the products. In a nutshell, what iStation is offering is a way to identify students who need additional support and give curriculum to the others to ensure that students achieve grade level well, actually, proficiency is the term, but we're going to go with grade level. iStation provides this reading program through activities that they provide on and offline, and these activities also identify students who require those more intensive supports and give educators the evidence they need to get these students the help they need. The last bit is what's meant by iStation's, quote, back-end collecting performance data on each child and provides unprecedented continuous assessment services to schools. Schools now can know, through this particular product, it's claimed, who is reading Dick and Jane and who just does not get the text. So now that we understand a little about the wild world of student performance data, let's delve into how Richard H. Collins came to be involved in Captain america the... Now that we understand a little about the wild world of student performance, let's delve into how Richard H. Collins came to be involved in Captain america the nation's children, to reach for the stars. Prior to joining iStation, and like many top-level education folks, Richard H. Collins has had a long and active career in something else, at least according to his alma mater, Southern Methodist University, a private research university which has graduated notable people such as Laura Bush, consort to the President Bush the W, John Tower, a thorn in Reagan's side, and Rick Scott, former governor of Florida who's best known for making welfare moms submit piss tests to get food for their children, expanding unaccountable charter schools, denying climate change, expanding stand-your-ground gun rights, suspending HIV prevention grants, deporting thousands of undocumented immigrants, and using unproven algorithms as part of an expanded surveillance of public spaces, all while attempting to suppress the vote by ending early voting. Not that we can blame institutions for individuals, but... Rick Scott graduated Southern Methodist University. Like many educational technology visionaries who strive to make education better for children and make some coin along the way, Richard H. Collins, we're just going to call Collins from here, has a background in finance. It seems that when you lose interest in money, you gain interest in children. Prior to his commitment to children's phonological awareness, Collins was the chairman of two commercial banks, was a real estate developer, a wildcatter, which means drilling oil wells on speculation, and a media investor. It's hard to find a good public source for when Collins joined Grayson, since often Collins is listed as a sole founder, and in some sources he's a co-founder and lists a bunch of other co-founders, well, except for Grayson. Whoever the real founder is, Grayson and Collins worked together for almost nine years as partners. Then things, uh, they went south for Grayson, and he was bounced out of the company. The details of this are covered in the lawsuit initiated by Grayson, which matched the boardroom drama of the HBO show Succession. Let's say the scene with Kendall running down the street to the shareholders' call, or the nasty infighting of the AMC's Mad Men. Let's say Lane Price fighting Pete Campbell in the office comes to mind, but... EdTech is in Hollywood, and if you want the true drama, 
You can check out the scintillating details in the publicly available lawsuit documents, Court of Chancery of the State of Delaware Civil Action, number 5051-CC. Sadly, Delaware Civil Action, number 5051-CC, played out for only one season, at least in the public record. One interesting item from the lawsuit is not that Collins manipulated the board of directors in order to gain a voting majority or allegedly didn't recognize the Grayson-installed board member or muted the two while they were conducting a vote, thereby annulling the Grayson-aligned voting member, but the accusation by Grayson that Collins was using company money to manipulate research on iStation results. This sort of interesting allegation in the lawsuit was levied by Grayson, who claimed that Collins intended to use iStation money as a gift to his alma mater, Southern Methodist University. This company gift was, according to Grayson, to encourage the university to run a study that would be, quote, favorable to the company. While the transaction didn't take place because the then board learned about this and they canceled this donation, this information was presented to the court to give a sense of Collins's character and his willingness to do what it took to succeed such as squeezing out his co-founder guy. In the end, Grayson settled for an undisclosed amount, and Collins continued his work at iStation and supportive university research to prove that iStation methods and outcomes were, quote, evidence-based. Enter one doc research assistant professor in the Caldwell Simon School of Education and Human Development. While a research assistant at the Cadwell Simon School of Education and Human Development wrote three glowing research studies of iStation, and they were all written while the good doctor also worked directly for iStation. Now, some of you fuddy-duddies out there might, might consider this a conflict of interests, and here are mere mortals to think of that, but to the ubermenches that run the higher educational sphere and education technology, the good professor is just working on a, quote, externally funded off-campus project. Well, that's at least according to a university statement on the matter. No wonder no one trusts doctors or universities. While the studies were written by Dr. This work bubbled up as effervescence in the cesspool that is the mainstream internet and gained renewed attention in 2019 since iStation's bid in the North Carolina contract relied on her papers as evidence of outcomes. As a matter of fact, in their research, 50% of that research validating iStation's claims for their reading program and their response to North Carolina's request for proposals came from academics who seem not to understand the words conflict of interest in particular clauses, since they work directly or very indirectly for iStation. And now we're finally back in the present, and here we are situated well back in North Carolina and iStation is having an attempt to win a lucrative contract for reading programs and push out their competitor, Amplify. Now before we jump into the hot steaming pile that is contractual bidding, we're going to learn more about iStation and how educators measure phonemic awareness, the building blocks of literacy. Now, unfortunately, for the sake of time, we're going to have to do that in part two of our story, so be sure to refer to your notes. So you can set your pencils down, and we do have time for one short announcement. Most of us know that Twitter is a great way to get fired or divorced in under 228 characters. Apparently, Jaron Wooten, a former teacher at Sugar Creek Elementary Charter School, needed to relearn the lesson, don't say anti-Semitic things online. Wooten, in just 221 characters, actually 179 if you exclude spaces, managed to skip the stone across the pond of anti-Semitism, hitting Rothschilds, associating Jews with demons, and for bonus points, went full Goodwin's Law by mentioning Hitler in a positive tone. While Wooten's tweet was supposed to be a critique of fractional reserve banking, he failed to mention notable critics, 
such as economist, well, Brooklyn's own Marie Rothbard, a student of the renowned Ludwig von Mises, Jesus Hereta de Soto, a Spanish anarcho-capitalist, or Socrates, New York native Irving Fisher, a critic of FDR's financial policy. None of the aforementioned critics of fractional reserve banking had to resort to medieval tropes in order to critique the system of fiat currency that is prone to cycles that lead to recession and depressions and tend to benefit entrenched moneyed interests. According to the source StopAntiSemitism.org, an organization where sure employees have to bleach their eyeballs by the end of the day after reading hundreds of online screeds, Superintendent Cheryl Turner initially was told by Wooten that his Twitter account was hacked, adding that such a tweet would be surprising from a, quote, a black male teacher who has experienced racism himself. Nevertheless, never underestimate the humanity in all people, and indeed, this teacher was not hacked, and indeed, Wooten had made this statement himself using his own fingers powered by his own brain. Wooten was promptly fired, and media outlets picked up the story about this viral tweet. According to CBS17.com, the teacher passed all background checks and behavioral assessments as part of the hiring process. According to school board chair H. Byron Ives III in a statement, quote, The administration was never made aware of these viewpoints or philosophies. Well, we're not sure where in the interview process this viewpoint would come up. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for coming back for a second interview. We, uh, we talked a lot about your teaching style and background, but we, we have one more question. Now, Mr. Wooten, reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Answer as quickly as you can. There are no wrong answers to this question, Mr. Wooten. It's just to get an idea of your viewpoints and philosophies. So, you're in a desert. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what desert. And all of a sudden you see a tortoise. It's, it's, it's like a turtle. You know what a turtle is? Same thing. All of a sudden, a tortoise comes by and says, Fractional banking. Mr. Wooden, what's the first word that pops into your head? We would like to thank our listeners, subscribers, our supporters on Patreon. You can join at whatever level you want, and we'll give you a shout-out to your school or school you wish, or we'll call you up and sing you happy birthday at this point. Some of the benefits that we're working on are still in progress, so we're going to get them to you. Just hang tight. We want to remind you to call our hotline Scandal. We want to also remind We want to also remind you to call our Scandal hotline with a hot tip or if you're interested in joining our Glee club, you can do You can do your own version of a state anthem or a school song for a future episode. You can go over and learn more all about this by going to ScandalK12US.com. We're also up on Twitter. We're also looking to get fired or divorced on Twitter, so hit us up at ScandalUS, and we're on Facebook. We're not on Facebook. We're not on Facebook yet, but um, we're also not on YouTube, and we're, we're not on Grindr, and we're not on Stitch, uh, we're not on... Uh, a lot of things. We're about not on a million other platforms that kids are using to connect these days, but we're trying our best. Get the word out. Tell a friend to listen to us. As always, we thank our news sources and the soundscape sounds that we've used. As with other episodes, we rely strictly on publicly available information and all the accusations, defamation, and condemnation are written by original authors. And that doesn't mean that we did any independent verification. Of course, all parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. 
We cite our sources on air as much as we can, and they're really good sources, but we put just about everything else in the show notes. Well, not just quite everything else. We only put some of everything else. Credits for both our journalist friends as well as free sound contributors will be listed on the website, scandalk12us.com. If you hear sound and it's yours and you don't see a credit, let us know. If you do hear sound and it's yours, let us know to credit you before you blast us on Twitch. Same thing for you journalists. If you want a list of all of our sources for any episode, let us know at scandalk12us at gmail.com. Free sound, as you may have heard before, allows us to add a soundscape and a lot of texture to our episodes and keep them rolling along. Do keep them in your thoughts and prayers and donate to the cause. And of course, after you have donated cold, hard cash to us through Patreon. So remember, students, tell us and we forget. Teach us and we remember. Screw us over and you're on scandal.k12.us. Class dismissed. Thank you.